You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Greetings, uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our time here together, Turning to the Christian Mystics and Teresa of Avila, to help us deepen our experience of and response to God's presence in our lives. Focusing our attention now in this session uh, on the fifth mansion, or the fifth dwelling place of the soul. And um, she, she begins to uh, help us begin to understand this, this heightened state of realized intimacy with God by contrasting it to the fourth mansion, by we're distinguishing it from the fourth mansion. And so she says in the first chapter, do not think that this is a state like the last, namely like the fourth mansion we've just explored, <clears throat> in which we dream. I say dream because the soul seems to be as it were drowsy, so that it neither seems asleep nor feels awake. Here, that is here now in this fifth mansion, we are all asleep and fast asleep to the things of the world and to ourselves. In fact, for the short time that the condition lasts, the soul is without consciousness and has no power to think, even though it may desire to do so. There is no need now for the soul to devise any method of suspending the thought. Even in loving, if we are able to love, it cannot understand how or what it is that it loves, nor what it would desire. In fact, it has completely died to the world so that it may live more fully in God. This is a delectable death, snatching of the soul from all the activities from which it can perform while it is in the body, a death uh, full of delight. For in order to come closer to God, the soul appears to have withdrawn so far from the body that I do not know if it if it's, has still life enough to be able to breathe. I've just been thinking about this, and I believe it has not, or at least if it still breathes, it does so without realizing it. The mind would like to occupy itself wholly in understanding something of which it feels, and it has not the strength to do this. It becomes so dumbfounded that even if any consciousness remains to it, neither hands nor feet can move. As we commonly say of a person who has fallen into a swoon, it might be taken for dead. Oh, the secrets of God. I should never weary of trying to describe them to you. As I thought 
I could do so successfully. I did not mind if I write any amount of nonsense, provided that just once in a way I can write sense so that we may give great praise to the Lord. I say that there are no questions here of dreaming, whereas in the mansion I've just described, that is again the fourth mansion, the soul is doubtful as to what has really happened until it has had a good deal of experience of it. It wonders if the whole thing was an imagination, if, if it had been asleep, if the favor was a gift from God, or if the devil had transformed it into an angel of light. It retains a thousand suspicions, and it is well that it should. For as I said, we can sometimes be deceived in this respect, even by our own nature. For although there is less opportunity for the poisonous creatures to enter, there are a few lizards very agile, see, who hide themselves here. So I'd like to reflect on this opening passage. See, I think it helps for a minute to see the, the trajectory that, that she's kind of tracing out here from a state where we didn't even know we had a soul, so kind of thrown into the external events and circumstances and struggles and all that of our life, to finding our way into the first mansion, where for the first time God becomes personally meaningful to us, where God's relationship with us becomes personally a matter of our concern, um, a matter of knowing this is where we are to find the meaning to our life. But it, our heart is divided. We're still conflicted by the tumult. So we pray, but it's hard to find the time to pray and so on. We go deeper into the second mansion, and the struggle is heightened by realizing we're traumatically bonded to these compromises, to giving ourselves over to this love that completely gives itself over to us. And we struggle with that and wrestle with that and work through that. Which brings us into the third mansion as we evolve towards a state of psychological, spiritual maturity in this uh, state. And um, saying that um, this is a great gift uh, to reach a state of maturity, both to ourselves and to our ministry and service to the world and, and, and so on. So we might say then in this first and the third mansion, uh, we might say then that this is our, our life of faith. It is in the third mansion. Uh, we, we know God is in a mirror darkly. Uh, kind of an obscure certainty in our heart, habituated in the stance of faith of God's oneness with us and with us in, in Scripture and in prayer and inspirations and so on. We know the measure of this faith life, of God's oneness with us, uh, is love. And uh, in this faith and in this love, we live by hope. That is, when death comes, when we pass through the veil of death, uh, it won't be more of this. It won't be more in paradise is not to be understood as kind of a sublimated or rarefied sense of these mediated ways of knowing God through inspirations and insights and consolations and so on. For rather, uh, when we cross over into God, God will be all in all. That uh, there will be a kind of a transubjective, infinite communion of uh, oneness with God and sharing in God's life in some graced way as perfectly, completely as God shares in God's own life as our destiny.
like the, div the divinity of our destiny, the generosity of God. But here what we're suggesting then, beginning with the fourth mansion, is that we, we begin to realize that this, this state of heaven, that is a state of this transsubjective communion, which is our destiny in God, is somehow already present in us in the seventh mansion of our own soul. The state of a transsubjective communion or oneness in the innermost hidden center of ourself as a kapax day or capacity to be, to be realized as we journey ever closer to it, as God leads us and empowers us to do so by these infusions of grace. And so this is what starts to happen in the fourth mansion as a kind of a foreshadowing of eternal life. That there is a, a, a God, as we intimately realize in the, in the midst of our reflective prayer and our intentions, that God is kind of sweetly and ever so delicately being the very intimate presence of God is intimately infusing itself into the intimate immediacy of our very soul. That is the very substance of our very subjectivity. And we're moving into a state of quiet. That is, we're, we're hold very quiet so as not to disturb or disrupt this amazing, delicate realization of this infused contemplation, the beginnings of this infused contemplation, evoking a state of absorption. And in that absorption, then the transformations occur, which she, we walk through in the fourth mansion. For example, realizing that our heart is being enlarged to divine proportions of the love that's flowing into it and, and so on. So now let's say that we're living this way. That is, let's just say in our own way, this is given to us to do so, we're becoming more and more acclimated to this fourth level. Notice the, the, first, the third, first three levels of the ego illumined by faith are still there. That is, we still need intentional consciousness for this. In this state of absorption, it's not yet divine union. And so we still need to choose when we get sleepy or get distracted. We need to kind of reinstate the sustained attentiveness infused with love, which is becoming the essence of our prayer, really the essence of our life. And as, as we get more and more acclimated to this, then this is where the fifth mansion emerges. And how I understand it to be this way in terms of the imagery of sleep is that as the influx of the divine presence becomes more and more um, intimately diffused throughout the substance of our very soul, our very totality of our subjectivity, that the, the, um, this, this refined state of attentiveness in the midst of this transformative grace, this, this, this stance in which we're subtly aware of it in reflective intentional consciousness, since being finite, it's finite, it cannot be uh, the recipient of this infinite union with the infinite that is now beginning to flow into us or to awaken us to this infinite union with the infinite, utterly beyond the finite boundaries uh, of, of the self being so awakened. And therefore, this reflective self goes into a kind of a sleep that is, is not being, it comes to the edge of itself, 
into its edges and therefore goes into a deep sleep because being finite, it can no longer be the recipient of the infused grace of God's flow, presence flowing into our life. And as a matter of fact, and Mary Froelich, again, turning to her insightful insights into all of this, too, is that that is so true, too, is that from the vantage point of the graced ego self in the fourth mansion that enters into the sleep, it, it would seem as if we became unconscious. That is to say, when, when the moment passes, when the moment of union passes, and we're able to once again get our bearings, we can look around where we are, and, and we, we come back to ourselves in reflective, intentional consciousness. We're, we, we don't know whether anything happened, that maybe we were unconscious. But then she says what happens, though, is this, 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 the fourth mansion experience of the self that was so transcended as that unitive event like washes over us. We are then in the light of the self now so strangely transcended by this union. It's given to us to realize that something did happen to us because we're different. We're, 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 we're different. And so she's saying then the task is now to discern the signs by which we can recognize the state of the, of the graced, awakened, transcended self, living in the state of the realization of the union that transcended it, washing over us and through us and illuminating us. Like, what is this like? And again, I think we can appreciate Teresa um, for, for, for the guidance given here in these matters that are so subtle and so delicate as we turn to her uh, trustworthy guidance in this. So she's looking for a metaphor now to convey this uh, ever so subtle state. And this is in the um, chapter two uh, of, um, of the fifth mansion. And here she turns to her metaphor, this kind of um, classic text here on the silkworm and the butterfly. You have heard of the wonderful way in which silk is made, a way which no one would invent, but could no one could invent but God, and how it comes from a kind of seed which looks like a tiny peppercorn. Here she's looking at her own understandings at the time on the biology of, of the silkworm and the spinning of the cocoon and so on. Um, so that when the warm weather comes and the silkworm eats the mulberry leaves um, that are laid down for it, um, until its sustenance and which it feeds, uh, uh, it feeds to the point of growth where it begins to spin a cocoon. And in the spinning of the cocoon, uh, is that when it is full grown then, as I wrote at the beginning, it starts to spin its silk and to build the house to which it is to die. That is, it is to die to itself as a caterpillar. This house may be understood here to mean Christ. I think I read or heard somewhere that our life is hidden with Christ in God, for that is the same thing, that, uh, that, that for, for that 
is our life in Christ. So, let's look at this together. Just as, following the metaphor, just as the silkworm eats and eats and eats and eats as a silkworm and reaches a point of fullness of growth, which you're paralyzed, the fullness realized in the fourth mansion, the soul. The silkworm begins to spin a cocoon about itself, and it disappears from view, just as in the sleep of the fifth mansion, we disappear from our own finite eyes. And having disappeared in this cocoon, which is Christ, our life is hidden with Christ in God. The caterpillar dies to itself, the silkworm dies to itself as a silkworm. And under that mysterious process of metamorphosis, it then emerges, uh, amazingly enough, as a butterfly. And she says, this is how we can understand um, that something uh, did happen to us. And we can start to recognize the affinities between what's qualitatively different now as we emerge from this process. Here's another way of putting it, maybe, kind of, which I think might help. Imagine a silkworm that hears about metamorphosis. And the silkworm decides it wants to prepare for its metamorphosis. And so it's, it starts reading books on how to metamorphosize. It goes on retreats to kind of prepare for its metamorphosis. It, it decides maybe that it's going to take with it a journal, so it can journal about it, maybe publish later, go on tour, uh, my metamorphosis. It's this butterfly. And uh, but when the metamorphosis begins, something happens that the caterpillar did not anticipate. Its very brain, that is, is the very mind of itself as a caterpillar, is the first thing that begins to metamorphosize. That is the place from which it was going to observe the process of its metamorphosis. It's the first thing that begins to metamorphosize. For a butterfly is not a caterpillar with wings, just as the resurrection is not the resuscitation of a corpse. And here is a sense then of the depth of, um, of this sweet death that we realize has occurred in this hidden state. And we realize the sweet death of the self now transformed in this in the fruit of that death, it is radically new way to be in the world, this new way to be with God in this fifth mansion state. Another way of looking at it, it seems, that helps me too, is to think of it, is we're really asking again here, is what happens when we die? That if, as we were saying earlier, uh, we don't, when we die, cross over into more rarefied versions of our life and reflective consciousness. It isn't that that's not going to be there too, like the eternality of all things, everything real is forever. Uh, but rather, we've died to everything less than an infinite union with infinite love, to that, lo that one life that is at once God's and our own, in which God is all in all.
And here's the mystic insight. This, this, this mystery in God where God is all in all, that even now God is all in all, in the innermost seventh mansion of the soul, uh, as a capacity to be actualized. That is, there is within us uh, uh, this, this communion, this communal life, that's actualized by God awakening us to it and moving and inspiring us to say yes to it and lean in close to it, that we might be unraveled and set free from everything that's less than this union, this within us. So what then, uh, we might say then, in this imagery, is we, we might say we realize we're, we're a butterfly with tattered wings. And Teresa writes, again, this is uh, chapter two, to see then the restlessness of this little butterfly, though it has never been quieter or more at rest in its life, here is something to praise God for, namely that it knows not where to settle and make its abode. By comparison with the abode that it had, that is the comparison that it had when this, in the caterpillar phase of the third mansion and also still at the cusp of crossing over into the fourth mansion, where we were still there, more identified with the self-reflective, intentional self. All that could be, all that was gained there, all that was lost there, that whole way of understanding ourselves, that everything it sees on earth leaves it dissatisfied, especially when God again and again gives it this wine, which almost every time has brought it some new blessing. So you're sitting there in this reflective state, and then again you disappear from yourself. And each time you reemerge again, you reemerge, re-quickened, re, re, re reawakened, redeepened in this newly discovered, divinized existence to which everything else pales in comparison is nothing. So it sets no store by the things it did when it was a worm, that is, when we were still in this reflective state of temporal consciousness, movement by grace, and so forth. It is not surprising, then, that as this little butterfly feels a stranger to the things of this earth, it should be seeking a new resting place. But where will the poor little creature go? It cannot return to the place it came from. For it has been said, however hard we try, it is not in our power to do that until God is pleased once again to grant us this favor that carries us yet deeper forward into this new homecoming in God. Ah, Lord, what trial must begin afresh in this soul. That is a soul, we see, this, this is not the beloved, this is not the beloved. Everything suffers from not enoughness. Everything in time and space, everything in our earthly life is qualitatively infinitely less and the oneness with God that now having tasted alone will be enough for us. I want to give an image of this. I, I would use this, this came to me some years ago, but I could use it now with my wife Maureen, who just in her death, but I was, I'll, I'll stick with my original version here. Uh, but it's the, the, like the, uh, the mystical mystery of widowhood. Uh, as a kind of another metaphor for this, I think. Imagine a woman who um, 
was blessed, her and her husband, with, <clears throat> with many, many years of very loving, many ups and downs that brought them to this really amazing state of years and years together. And her husband dies. And on the night of the funeral, one of their adult children brings her back to the house, maybe the house that they were raised in. And they bring their mother into the house. The person says, Mom, are you going to be all right? And she says, I'll be all right. And she hears the car start up in the driveway and drive off. And uh, she's alone in an empty house filled with things, and she cannot sleep. And she walks um, from one darkened room to the other. Each piece of furniture touching each piece in the memories. Remember when they got this piece and this piece and this piece, the configuration of this. And if she could, if she could give all that away and the house along with it to have one more moment with the beloved, she would do it. And it doesn't lie in her power to do it. And so it is in the fifth mansion person then, the restlessness the restlessness in a less tangible way, but more atmospheric or all-pervasive way. One lives in this, this restlessness that the Son of Man, Jesus said, has nowhere to lay his head, you know, save in the bosom of the Father, in the bosom of God. And there's nowhere spacious enough or gracious enough but to our homecoming resting in the bosom of God now that God has been infused into us, giving us a taste of that oneness. And, th and this is our state. So we're like betwixt and between here, again, in a, in a new way between two worlds. We can't go back to the way we used to experience things, for now we know by experience it's infinitely less. And yet we, do, we don't know how to move on either. But if we don't panic, that is, if we don't panic and we're very quiet and we trust in God, we begin to discover the graces that arise in this state. Why it is that we're more at peace than we've ever been in our life, she says. And one of these graces is the grace of certainty. I'd like to reflect on this. The certainty. Oh, this is the, at the end of chapter one, fifth mansion. Do not make the mistake of thinking that this certainty has anything to do with bodily form with the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, for example, unseen by us in the most holy sacrament in the Eucharist. It has nothing to do with this, but only with his divinity, that is, with God as God. How, you will ask, can we become so convinced of what we have not seen? That I do not know. It is the work of God, but I know I am speaking the truth, and if anyone has not this certainty, I would say that what he has experienced is not union of the whole soul with God, but only union with one of the faculties or with some of the many kinds of favor that God grants to the soul. In all these matters, we must stop looking for reasons why they happen. If our understanding cannot grasp them, why should we perplex? Why should we try to perplex ourselves over it? It suffices to know that he who brings this to pass is all-powerful, and it is God who does it. And we, however hard we work, are quite incapable of achieving it. Let us not become capable of understanding it either. Let us not try to become capable. I'd like to reflect on this certainty. And here again, this quote we're quoting earlier in the Reflections on Merton, 
Seymour Merton says, there are some things we simply have to accept as true or we go crazy inside. And they're the very things that we are unable to explain to anybody, including ourselves. Or Dan Walsh talked about metaphysics, to mystical medieval metaphysics at the monastery. I know it, I know it, I know that I know it. But the trouble is, it's I who know that I know it. And when I try to tell you what it is that I know, uh, I, I don't know what to say. But that which, for which I can find no words is that of which I am certain. So the certainty then is a grace certainty. It's not the certainty of an assertion, but the certainty of a humble submission to an inner clarity or a certainty that you were in God and God was in you as, as a, the granting of an unexplainable certainty within your heart. And she also says that if this, if this uh, unit of experience happened only once, the fruits of it linger on through over the years for every time it's recalled again, the certainty is as there as if it had just happened. Even though it's clouded over and covered by many things perhaps, it gets reinstated in a certainty that never diminishes deep down to the thing. So what we're trying to do here in Fifth Mansion is to keep the certainty alive through daily fidelity to prayer and meditation, to let it stabilize and let it become more and more habitual or more and more abiding certainty in the midst of our inability to explain. Saying St. John of the Cross, to have no light to guide you except the one that burns in your heart. And um, it's, it's the grace of certainty. So there is then, we are this uh, butterfly with tattered wings. The butterfly with tattered wings, there is this aloneness, this, this poverty. And it's in the very poverty deeply accepted that the infusion of the beloved beyond the abilities of our finite ego to grasp it keeps washing over us and transcending us so, so unexplainably. Next she says, that really, and this maybe seems to be more at the heart of what she's getting at here, um, because what she's getting at here is we realize that what starts to happen is a more kind of all-pervasive, kind of atmospheric, qualitatively new way to be present in the world, not just in our prayer, certainly, but in our day-by-day -day life, in the very way we approach things and understand things and live by things in this transformed state. And so she, she, she says, um, this again is in um, chapter two, toward the end of chapter two. She's speaking of the peace. I do not mean that those who attain to this state have no peace. They do have it, and to a very high degree, for even their trials are of such sublimity and come from so noble a source that severe though they are, they bring peace and contentment. The very contentment caused by the things of the world arouses a desire to leave it, so grievous that any alleviation it finds can only be in the thought that its life in this exile is God's will. She says somewhere, I think in the life, she says, she says, when I was first starting to be graced with these things, I asked God for the grace to die so I could be in, with God in heaven. 
then I realized the only reason I was still alive is it was God's will for me to be alive. Therefore, it's my desire to be one with God's will that I be alive. And when it's God's will for me to die, it is my will for me to die. So we're aligning ourselves like Jesus. I have no, the, 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 the bread I, the food I offer is to do the will of the, it's to do the will of God in all things. We're, we're being aligned to this all pervasive, trustworthy nature of God's will in the unfolding of our daily life. She continues, and even if this is insufficient to comfort it, that is, one's willing to be here as long as God wills one to be here. And even if this is insufficient to comfort it, for despite all that has gained, the soul is not wholly resigned to the will of God, because we're still a work in progress, as we shall see later. It has not failed to act in conformity with God's will, but it does so with many tears and with great sorrow at being unable to do more because it is given it is it's because it has given no more capacity that there is a sorrow that one cannot more deeply respond to the love that is so deeply giving itself to us and our sorrow is we can't give more because we can't give more until we're empowered by god to give more so that even the inability is at the edge of the presence of god it is his own mystery of god in our life she continues whenever it engages in prayer this is a grief to it that it can't do more it can't give itself more deeply to some extent perhaps it is a result of the great grief caused by seeing how often god is offended and little esteem one looks out at the world and sees the sorrow of uh, we might say you realize your unconsummated longings for god are um, an echo in your heart of a God's unconsummated longings, not just for you, but for all of humanity. And uh, it gives us a new sense of how we look at the world and see the people of the world. Have you not heard concerning the bride? I said this a little while back, though not without reference to the same matter, that God put her in the cellar of wine and ordained charity in her. Well, that is the position here. The soul has now delivered itself into his hands, and his great love has so completely subdued it that it neither knows nor desires anything, save, the, save what God shall do with it, what he wills. Never, I think, will God grant this favor, save to the soul, which he takes for his very own. His will is that, without understanding how, the soul shall go hence, sealed with his seal. In reality, the soul is in that state. It does no more than the wax when the seal is impressed upon it. The wax does not impress itself. It is only prepared for the impress. That is, it's softened in the mansion to receive the imprint of God's own presence, configuring itself as this qualitatively new and deeper way to be present in the world. And as, as a last reflection, she says, she, she says, um, and here she's echoing, I think, CG's, what is the greatest commandment? To love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul. Then, then is your neighbor is yourself. And she says, So ask our Lord to grant you this perfect love for your neighbor and allow his majesty to work. 
And if you use your best endeavors and strive after this in every way that you can, he will give you even more than you can desire. You must do violence to your own will so that your sister's will be done in everything, even though this may cause you to forgo your own rights and forget your own good and your concern for theirs, however much your physical powers may rebel. If the opportunity presents itself, try to shoulder some trial in order to relieve your neighbor of it. Do not suppose it will cost you nothing or that you will, f- or that you will find it all done for you. Think of what the love which our spouse has shown to what the love our spouse has shown to us has cost him, referring here to the cross, when in order to return us from death, he died such a grievous death as death on the cross. I'd like to end by reflecting on this. She certainly doesn't mean here that we would be so concerned about other people that we would in any way compromise our fidelity to the love of God because, as you see, we're now being conformed to the love of God. So it's not a matter of compromising our principles or compromising, uh, and so these principles are principles of love and so on. But she's saying this, here's one way I would put it. Let's say you're in a situation where you're, you're facing a task to be done. This could happen in a marriage or with a family or in a community or at work. And let's say you have your way that you know it seems to you this would be the best. It certainly would be the best for you because you can draw on it and use it and you, you pitch that as best you can. But you see that there's somebody else that has another idea. And you can see that they, it means a lot to them. And so you learn to divest yourself of being overly entrenched in ideological insistence on your own way to put it aside not just to go along with and be there for the other person's way to join them in it, but even support them in it. And if you do this, uh, you will gain even more of this love pouring into you because it will be an echo of how God's love is poured into us as revealed in Christ, for he did not consider his equality with God a condition to be clung to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant in this um, dying to all things but love, the mystery. So this is the this is the um, the, the fifth mansion of the soul for Teresa, and so um, uh, let's um, uh, bring this to meditation. Sit in meditation again now, just for a few moments sitting, and uh, so that on your own, as you're so inclined, you can extend this renewed and deepened openness to your practice and throughout your day. I invite you then to uh, sit straight and hold your hands in prayer and bow. Be still and know I am God. Be still and know I am. Be still and know. Be still.
slowly say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Contemplatives, pray for us. St. John of the Cross, pray for us. St. Teresa of Adelaide, pray for us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.